Today I'd like to welcome Dr. Rory Spiegel. Uh, Dr. Spiegel is currently uh, in his resuscitation fellowship and instructor at Stony Brook University Medical Center. He works with Scott Weingart up there um, constructing and refining and studying and participating in a, an EDICU um, that's being created. Um, Dr. Spiegel did his emergency medicine residency training at Newark uh, Beth Israel Medical Center. He uh, is additionally a physical therapist from NYU, so is uh, um, added, added expertise in the, in the critical care arena as we're seeing more and more um, uh, post-ICU uh, issues arise with our patients that, uh, for whom we're becoming so adept at saving in the acute phase. Um, he has won numerous awards and has had various accolades from uh, emergency medicine groups, including his being the Emra Fomer uh, uh, Educator of the Year. Um, he's won a variety of uh, uh, emergency medicine awards over the past multiple years as well for his teaching um, that's been uh, in, in uh, delving into the uh, online realm of medical education so successfully. So uh, just to jump to the start, since we're already running late, Doctor, welcome Dr. Spiegel. Thank you. Um, you know, former of the year, when you try to tell your mom you won former of the year, it's a totally different context. They really have to change the name of that award. Um, I've been a huge fan of the Maryland CC project since its audio inception, so this is a terrifying honor to speak today. Um, when we decided that I would discuss evidence-based medicine and literature interpretation, it was rather a daunting task for 50 minutes to actually teach anything useful in evidence-based medicine. It's quite difficult. It's really a lifetime endeavor. That being said, I know you're all very excited when you look on the critical care schedule and you see you're going to spend 50 minutes teaching, learning evidence-based medicine, which often will put people into an evidence-based induced coma. And while I was gathering slides for this presentation, I found this slide, which you all hear of the, um, the ED50, or the dose of a toxin, or the LD50, me, the dose of a toxin that would kill 50% of the people given to it. This is the SD50, so this is the dose of evidence-based medicine in time um, that is gonna put 50% of your audience to sleep. And you can see it's somewhere around 45 minutes, and this talk clocks in around 50 minutes, so you can see the challenge we have here today. That being said, we're going to try to take some pretty basic concepts, which I think are important in literature interpretation, and just look at them in a different and interesting perspective. And we're going to do it in the form of a journal club. Who here has read the Flyari trial? All right. So we could use any article we wanted. I chose this one because um, I thought it had some interesting components for me in, in emergency medicine and for ICU care. Um, additionally, uh, Scott and I wrote a piece for Annals on this. So whoever's interested in what, what I'm talking about today. Um, all of this, all the sources can be found here, so I can email this to you if you guys want to do further reading on it. Disclosures, financially I have none. Intellectually I write this blog called The Nerd, where I kind of rant angrily about topics of emergency medicine. And so the overwhelming idea of what we're gonna to try to talk about today is truth for science, truth being the underlying reality, which we don't know, and science being the tools we use to try to uncover that reality. Um, and we're going to discuss science and, and how we can use it to try to get at truth, and we're also going to discuss how science can lead us astray. Um, so I guess 
the first question is why use science at all? Why not just use our empiric anecdotal experience to guide our therapy and guide our medical knowledge? And I thought we could start with a little story to illustrate that. And this was published in the New England Journal in 1999. It's entitled The Death of a President. I'm going to read the opening passage. It was the best of times. The last war had ended a generation earlier, and a European war had just been avoided. Prosperity was visible. There were new medicines for frightening diseases. As the snow blanketed the Virginia countryside, the young nation's future seemed bright. It was the last month of the century, December 1799. But on a frigid afternoon, three physicians gathered around a dying man were not so optimistic. And so this is the story of the death of George Washington. And it opens up on a December day in his farm. He was about 76 years old. He had been the general in the Revolutionary War. He had been our first president. He was practically a god walking among men. And he was still in great health. He spent the whole day out on his farm tending to his horses. And he came in feeling unwell, went to bed early that night. But about 2 AM, woke up complaining of a sore throat. So his doctors were called for. And you know, it takes them a while to get to him at that time. And by 6 AM, he was febrile with throat pain and obvious respiratory distress. The first of his doctors to arrive was Dr. James Craig, who was an Edinburgh-trained physician and actually fought in the war with George Washington. And he examined the patient um, and decided to give what was a common treatment at that time, which was to bleed him. And he bled him 12 to 14 ounces of blood. A few hours later, the, the former president was actually looking worse. He was in worse respiratory stress, pacing around the room, couldn't get comfortable. And so Dr. Craig applied what was called a blister of cantharides, which was essentially these bugs mashed up into an emulsion and applied to the mucous membranes, which acts as an irritant and creates a blister. Shockingly, this didn't work. And so he decided to bleed him another 18 ounces. A few more hours passed. The president wasn't looking any better. He was now had an audible wheeze, couldn't tolerate his secretions, and the doctor was getting worried. And so after examining the patient, he decided to bleed him another 18 ounces. So the day went on, and Washington's second physician arrived here. And this was Elijah Dick, an American-trained physician, 37 at the time. And it was apparently up to date in all the most recent literature at that time. And the doctors got together examining the patient. And after a discussion, decided they would bleed him another 32 ounces of blood. And so December 14, 1799, at 10 PM was when George Washington passed away. And this story tells the last few minutes of his life with his family staying around, his doctors frantically trying to figure out how to keep this man alive. And they talked about doing an emergent tracheostomy. They talked about bleeding him even further. Um, but finally, the president actually refused, saying they had done a good job, but it was his time to go and passed shortly afterwards. Now, historians try to discuss what actually killed George Washington. They talk about it being tracheitis, epiglottitis, croup, diphtheria. And they're not so sure, but his secretary kept careful, careful records how much blood he was bled during that time period. And they describe the last blood where they took 32 ounces as coming out thick, dark, and slow like molasses. So the last 12 hours of his life when he was clearly in septic shock, no matter which criteria we use, he was bled about a third of his blood volume. And blood bleeding for centuries up to then was an accepted form of medical practice. And if you look, here are some of the actual diseases which it was recommended for. My favorite is acne over here on the side. 
Um, and you can see the, the recommended technique was to bleed patients while they were sitting upright or standing and often remove it until the patient actually fainted. Right. So it wasn't until about 17 years after the death of George Washington that this man here, Alexander Lewis, actually started to do real experiments into the efficacy of bloodletting. This, he was a Parisian doctor, and while fighting in the um, Peninsula War, he was a surgeon, and his, his men had camp fever, which is typhus. Um, and there were three of them, and so they took patients in a rotation, one patient after another. So you had this pseudo-randomization, and two of the doctors who were already skeptical about bloodletting, uh, Dr. Lewis and one other, didn't bleed anyone, and the third one bled every patient he had. So what you had was you had 122 patients who were bled and 244 who were not bled. And the resulting mortality was 29 versus 2.5%. A huge difference, right? And why did it take this long for us to actually start looking at bloodletting as critically and as a, as a treatment in medicine? It was because most people we bled got better no matter, you, no matter what you did. Um, and when they didn't get better, it was because you bled them too late or you didn't bleed them enough. And it wasn't until you actually took a critical look that we actually saw the true benefits of bloodletting. So there's, Evidence exists along this continuum here, right? There's stuff that we have obvious harms that we don't really need evidence to find out. And there's stuff with obvious benefits. And then there exists these shades of gray. And that's where most of the evidence is gonna guide us, and that's what we're gonna talk about today. So this is the fluoride trial. For those of you who don't know, this is a randomized controlled trial where they looked at patients with hypoxic respiratory failure. Um, they couldn't be hypercapnic, they couldn't have cardiogenic, um, failure. And so from now on, I'm going to say hypoxic respiratory failure instead of non-hypercapnic, non-cardiogenic hypoxic respiratory failure because it's just easier. Um, and you can see they randomized into three groups. They looked at high flow nasal cannula versus BiPAP versus a face mask. And they wanted to see if it would prevent intubation. So I think the first thing we have to talk about today is error. What is error in the form when we look at literature? Right? If you guys know what error is. So, the simple word is any deviation from the truth, right? There's this underlining truth. And error is, is when the results we get deviate from that. And there's typically two forms of error, right? And so if we take a population, so this is all patients in the whole world with hypoxic respiratory failure presenting to an ICU, right? And the ones in orange are the patients that if we applied high flow nasal cannula to all these patients, these are ones that would be spared in intubation, right? So the true benefit, which is unknown, and this is theoretical, is 22 out of 100. So for every 100 patients we apply high-flow nasal cannula, 22 of them get benefit. Now, we want to find this out. So we want to do a study to actually figure out this efficacy. And theoretically, we'd love to sample the whole population. Every patient with hypoxic respiratory failure, enroll them in this trial. And that is somewhat unreasonable, though some of the big data um, trialists out of New Zealand and Australia you might say at one point we'll get there. But right now we can't take the whole population. So we want to take a sample and we want to see if that hope that that sample represents the greater population. Depending on your sample and who you get, you get deviations from reality, right? And this is what is called sampling error. This is random error, random deviations from the truth based on the sample you get. And we want a way to try to quantify this error. And what's the most typical or traditional way we use? Right, so the traditional was the p-value, right, or the probability value. And you guys, we use it all the time, right? And we always say a p-value less than 0.05 is statistically similar. But what does that actually mean? 
So the probability, the probability value or the p-value is the probability of attaining a result equal to or more extreme than it was actually observed, assuming the null hypothesis is true. It's essentially the specificity of a trial. And you can say something like that, but it still doesn't quite make conceptual sense. So I thought we could look at a slide. Right? This is the only graph we're going to do in the whole presentation, I promise. Um, and traditionally, we see these two, two by two tables when we're doing diagnostic studies, right? So we're trying to look at the accuracy of a certain diagnostic test. And traditionally, we're used to disease positive, <coughs> disease negative on the top two columns, test positive, test negative on the side here. Um, but we can do the same thing for a trial, right? So this is the case where the null hypothesis is false, or there's a true difference between the two things we're looking at. And here is the null hypothesis is true, or there is no difference. And on the, in the right rows, we say we reject the null hypothesis, or the trial we're looking at finds a difference between the two groups, or we don't find a difference between the two groups. And I think when we look at it this way, it's a little more intuitive than, than we use the null hypothesis, right? Now, when we're talking about the p-ball, you remember we're assuming the null hypothesis is true. So we're existing entirely in this column right here where there's no difference between the two groups. Right? And so we can do two things. We can either find no difference and correctly accept the null hypothesis, or we can incorrectly reject the null hypothesis. And we've come to, and this is what is called the alpha error. Right? And what we're saying or what we want is if we do this same trial an infinite number of times, our threshold for a statistically positive or statistically relevant test is if we only incorrectly reject the null hypothesis 5% of the time. You guys know why 5%? Lady tasting tea. Sorry? Lady tasting tea by M.K. Fisher. Right. Um, so this is Ronald Fisher. Um, he was a statistician. Um, who mo did most of his work in agriculture and mechanical engineering. And he did, he did a number of works on this, um, on why we should pick a p-value of 0.05. Um, this, is, this is one of the pieces he wrote. It is convenient to draw the line at about the level at which you can say either there is something in the treatment or coincidence has occurred, such that it does not occur more than once in 20 times. So some people say it was almost an arbitrary point at 0 0.05 of what we selected. And in other works, he's actually argued for higher or lower p-value, right? So the authors selected a primary endpoint. So their primary outcome was the proportion of patients who required endotracheal intubation at 20 days after randomization. Why is it important that they stated this endpoint initially before the trial was ever done? So this is what is called hypothesis testing, right? And this is the idea that you're going to state your hypothesis a priori before the actual event. And this is an important step just because of the, the problems with frequentist statistics, which we'll get into. So if we go back to our p-value, right, the probabilities of results are under the occurring if the null hypothesis is true, and we selected a p-value of 0.05 being statistically relevant. We make one observation and we find a p-value of 0.05. What are the chances that happen when there's actually no difference between the two? It's 5%, right? But what if I make two observations and one of them happens at the p-value of 0.05? What are the chances that that happened when there's actually no difference between the two groups? It's 10%. If I make three, it's 14.3. Five is 22.7. And 10, there's a 40% chance so if I make 10 observations and one of them has a p-value of 0.05, there's a 40% chance that that happened by chance alone. 
right? So that's why you have to a priori select one thing that you're going to look at, right? And, and this can be explained using the formula here where D is the amount of observations you make. So let's look at an example. So ISIS-2, and only recently I've actually started to write a little qualifier here, the International Study for Infarct Survival, because that's a whole new context nowadays. But you guys know what ISIS-2 was? So ISIS-2 was aspirin's efficacy-defining study. Anytime you hear someone cite a number needed to treat a 42 or a 2.4% absolute benefit, it's this trial. And these authors looked at over 17,000 patients having a myocardial infarction, and they randomized them to either receive aspirin or placebo, right? And so when they went to get their results published in The Lancet, the editors of The Lancet asked them to do multiple subgroup analyses. And these authors knew the dangers of doing such an analysis, but they wouldn't publish a study unless they did it. So here's their analysis. And actually, if you look closely, they kind of played a little joke on the editors, right? One of the subgroups they looked at was aspirological birth size. Right. And you can see most of them have the standard benefit that we saw throughout the whole trial. But if you're a Gemini or a Libra, aspirin provides no benefit during an MI. So who here is a Gemini or a Libra? Anyone? Are you guys not going to have aspirin if you're having a heart attack? No, right, because that's absurd. There's no biological plausibility that this actually happened, right? This is a sampling error because you took too many samples and you're seeing a deviation from the truth just by random error. So we can start to say, if we start looking at data sets and we start making multiple examinations or multiple observations, it's very easy to start to pick up statistical noise and mistake it for signal. So, what we've been talking about is sampling error, right? This is the random error or random deviation from the truth. And though it exists, we at least have a way to quantify it and we at least have the way to measure it, the likelihood of it occurring. There's a whole other type of error that's non-random and much harder to measure, right? And this is bias. So who knows what this is, picture of? It's the 1988 Summer Olympics in Barcelona. The man you see here is Canada's Ben Johnson, and coming in a distant second is America's Carl Lewis, right? So if I told you to look at this picture and tell me who's faster, could you tell me? What I said, it's not fair. It's one race. So I had them run this a 1,000 times. There's their mean finishes. There's the standard deviation. I've even given you a p-value right there. Who's faster? So three days after this race, Ben Johnson tested positive for anabolic steroids, right? And that was a non-random deviation from the truth, right? So this is a problem with the internal validity of the study, right? The study's results don't rep represent the truth because of the design of the study itself. Now, what if I said the same race, same results, who's faster, Canadians or Americans? Can't tell me either, right? Because neither one of these men are representative of the countries they race for, right? And so applying these results, to our greater population of Canada and America wouldn't be appropriate, right? And this is the study's external validity, how well you can apply those results to the population you want to look at. Both these problems deviate the results from the truth in a non-random fashion. Now, there's certain ways we can try to quantify this or try to control for it using linguistic regression methods, but none of them work perfectly, right? And the only way we can try to attempt to control non-random error or bias because we can't measure it or quantify it is through randomization. And randomization is the concept that we have different variables that are confounding our results or deviating them from the truth. 
And so since we decided we can't quantify it or we can't control for it, what we're going to do is hope that if we randomize patients, these confounders will get easily divided up into the groups we're looking at. And so those confounders will get canceled out. And so it's important when we're doing this stuff, we'd like our trials to be randomized, right? So did the Florida group randomize their patients? They did, right? They randomized them one to one to one, right? And they used something called a web-based system measure, centralized web-based system measure. And what's that? Why is it important that the randomization process happened in a centralized department? So this is what is called allocation concealment, right? This is the idea that the people enrolling these patients didn't know where the patient was being randomized or to what group it was being randomized to. And why is that important? Why can't I just say Monday you get high-flow nasal cannula, Tuesday you get BiPAP, Thursday you get face mask, and we just keep going in that order every day? We all have biases, right? So today's Thursday, right? So it happens to be a high-flow nasal cannula day, and I have this gentleman showing up who happens to be a smoker. And my bias is that smokers all have some clinical aid called COPD, whether they have it or not, and I think he would do better on BiPAP. So he's a high flow day. I want him on BiPAP. He's not going to get BiPAP in the trial, so I don't enroll him in the study, right? So I have an enrollment bias or a selection bias in the patients I'm enrolling in the study because I know which group they're getting enrolled to or not. So you, you want to conceal the allocation, right? And stuff where you don't have a centralized bias will actually open up that concealment bias. Sometimes you can post the, the, the enrollment on the, on the wall and you can actually see the code. Anytime you open up the code, to the practitioners, you introduce biases in the study, right? So the one-to-one -one centralized web-based management helps hide that code. But they use something called permuted block randomization. Do you guys know what that is? So in large enough randomization, right, when you have thousands of patients in each group, simple randomization works really good. But when you have a small study, it's very easy to get unbalanced groups just by random chance. So authors try to control for that, and that's probably appropriate, right? And so they take certain factors that they think would confound their results, and they make sure they're divided evenly in between groups. So here we have A, B, A, B, A, A, B. So you could say one of the most common ones is site, right? So they think that certain sites would have better outcomes than others. So they make sure that patients are randomized equally at each site. But when you have a non-blinded trial like this, it's very easy to, un uh, to unblind the concealment when you do this, right? So this is one site you're working at, right? And you can see, so far you've seen that two patients have been randomized into BiPAP and two patients have been randomized into face mask. Who's, what's the next patient going to no matter what? High flow nasal cannula, right? You know that's the, what, where the next patient at this site is going to no matter what they come in with, right? I have the same smoker come in in respiratory distress, we know he's going into the BiPAP group, but I have the same bias I did before, and so I'm not gonna enroll him in the study because I want him on BiPAP. And so if you look at their results, out of the 525 patients, 160 did not make it in for logistics reasons. They didn't tell us what they were, and they didn't tell us if the actual, um, the subject's um, characteristics were different than the patients that were enrolled. So we don't know exactly why these patients were enrolled. It could be that the, you know, the person that enrolled patients in the study just didn't show up that day. But we do know when a subject's allocation, or sorry, when a, a test's or a, a study's allocation concealment is, isn't so um, rigid, the results are deviate from the truth. 
All right, so let's talk about blinding a little bit. Did this study blind? It's kind of hard, right? You can't really blind face masks versus high flow nasal cannula versus BiPAP. Um, but I thought we'd look at one of the first stories of blinding. So you guys know who this is, Fraz Mesmer? This guy was a German physician practicing in, in practice all over, but in France in the late 1700s. And he developed what he called animal magnetism. And this was the concept that we all have these liquids flowing through our bodies. And by using certain motions and certain tools, he could get those liquids flowing the way he wanted and claim he could cure things like hysteria, rheumatism, blindness, and so forth. So he had held these big parties, and uh, Marie Antoinette took a liking to him. And so she would host these parties in the castle, and it would cost lots and lots of money to hold these things. Um, now, Louis XVI didn't like it. He didn't, li he didn't think animal magnetism was a real treatment. He didn't like that all his money was going to hold these massive parties. So he enrolled the uh, Academic Society of the Sciences in Paris, and they enlisted five members, one of which was Benjamin Franklin, to actually go about testing animal magnetism. And they did a number of things, but essentially what they did, they blinded the participants to the practitioner. And so some of them would actually get the whole movements and the tapping and so forth, and the others wouldn't get anything. And once they blinded them, they were unable to tell the two difference, the difference between the groups, right? So this was the first, one of the first examples of the placebo effect. And Benjamin Franklin decided these patients were mesmerized, right? Or this is the origin of the word mesmer. But there's more to blinding than just the placebo effect, right? There's the intrinsic bias of us, the physicians, and how a non-blindness study changes the way we treat patients, right? So if you look at the fluoride trial, you can see the minimal required duration of non-invasive ventilation was eight hours per day. The rest of the time, you could be on high-flow nasal cannula, right? So if you like high-flow nasal cannula better, you could put them on high-flow nasal cannula most of the day. You didn't have to put them on BiPAP, right? And if you look at the trial, the median time these patients were actually on BiPAP was about eight hours. So half of them had BiPAP less than eight hours, half of them had BiPAP more than hours. But a good significant portion of the day, these patients were on high flow nasal cannula. And in the other way, the patients on high flow nasal cannula or standard oxygen therapy could be put on non-invasive ventilation if the treating physician thought it was appropriate. And so if you like non-invasive better, you could easily switch your patients to non-invasive. And if you look at the study, 27.6% of the patients on face masks and 13.2% of the patients on high flow nasal cannula received BiPAP a good proportion of their days. Right? So this is what is called contamination. And what does this do to your result? If you have, this is the true mean difference between, these are two different, true difference between the two means. This is going to make these groups more similar and make the difference between them less, right? And so you're going to get a deviation from the truth, making your group more alike. And finally, who did they enroll? We talked about already briefly that they enrolled hypoxic respiratory failure patients who are not hypercapnic and not in cardiogenic shock. But who did they not enroll? So they excluded patients with severe neutropenia, hemodynamic instability, glasopoma scale less than 12. So anyone that was very sick was excluded from this trial, right? And if you look at their table or figure one, you can see here that out of the 2,506 patients with acute hypoxic respiratory failure, the large majority of them were excluded. And a lot of them because they had, they were too sick to be enrolled in this trial. And this is a problem with the external validity when I go to apply it to my patients in the emergency department or your patients in the ICU. These patients were essentially the Ben Johnsons and Carl Lewis's of hypoxic respiratory failure. 
So let's look at the results. So when we look at the results, remember we're taking a small sample and we're trying to see how that sample relates to the greater population, right? That's mostly what we're doing with the statistics we're using as a tool, right? And so what did they find? So their primary outcome, which was intubation at 28 days, there was no statistical difference between the group. You can see p-value of 0.18. But if you look at the actual data, there is a difference, right? 38% in the high flow group got intubated versus 50% in the non-invasive group. It comes out to, when you do the rounding, about 12 to 13% difference, absolute difference in the amount of patients that were intubated at 28 days between the two groups, right? And if you go down all their secondary numbers, the ones that were sicker with the P, PAO2 to FIO2 ratio less than 200, a statistically significant difference between the two groups, right? 18% difference. Ventilator-free days, statistically significant less ventilator-free days when you were on high flow nasal cannula versus BiPAP. Mortality, huge difference in mortality, not statistically significant, but, it, oh, no, it was statistically significant, excuse me. Statistically significant difference in mortality, and 90-day adjusted mortality even higher, right? And so you see throughout this whole data set, the patients on high flow nasal cannula did better, but it was a negative trial. And so this is an issue with statistical power, right? And so what is statistical power? The power or sensitivity of a binary hypothesis test is the probability that the test correctly rejects the null hypothesis when the alternative hypothesis is true. So what does that actually mean? Because I, I, I don't know what that means. It sounds confusing, right? This is essentially a study's sensitivity, right? And so we'll go back to our two guide two table, right? And so now we're functioning that the, that the alternative hypothesis is true, right? So we're functioning only in this column right here, right? And so we can do two things. We can correctly reject the null hypothesis or find a difference between the two groups, or we can incorrectly find no difference between the two groups. And this is what's called the beta error, or one minus the beta error is our statistical power. And so what we're doing is if we do the same test, just like before, an infinite number of times, if there is a true difference between the two groups, we'll identify that 80% of the time when we use an 80% power. Right, so what did these authors look at? They assumed that there was a 20% difference between the two groups, and then they figured out that they needed 300 patients to correctly identify that difference 80% of the time. Now, I always found it hard to kind of grasp statistical power when it's written like this, and I think it's much easier if you actually use confidence intervals to actually look at that, right? So what they did, they're, they're looking for a 20% difference, right? So what they're stating is, if there's a 20% difference between these two groups, I'm gonna be able to differentiate that from statistical chance. But if there's a 15% difference, I can't differentiate statistical chance or no difference from a 15% absolute difference. If I wanna do that, I have to make it a bigger study so I can actually differentiate that, right? So to determine if a study is powered correctly is a qualitative statement, right? You have to decide what is a clinically important difference to you. And if the study can't show that that clinically important difference, it's not a useless study, but it's just not powered to show the difference you want. And so here's their absolute risk reduction, right? They found a 13% difference in the patients in the intubation rate at 28 days between the patients put on high-flow nasal cannula and phasing. And so the p-value is greater than 0.05. But the best we can say from this study is I can't tell a 13% difference from no difference at all. 
And so this is what a confidence interval is, right? It's telling me where my results lie, right? And what does a confidence interval actually tell you? It's commonly mistaken as a confidence interval tells you the 99% confident where truth actually lies. But it can't actually tell you that, right? All confidence will tell you is if I did this study infinite number of times, the results of the study with all the potential forms of bias and everything else in that study would fall between the, these two results. And so it still doesn't tell me about truth, right? Because that's what I want to get at. And what I really want to know is when I find a trial with a statistically significant difference, how often is that trial true? How often is that result correct, right? And I only can do that when I know these numbers here and these numbers here, right? So let's do a theoretical exercise, right? Let's say I have a thousand patient or a thousand different hypotheses, and ten percent of them happen to be true, just theoretically. We're not exactly sure, but let's say ten percent, right? So that means out of the thousand, a hundred of my hypotheses happen to be true, and that means I'll correct correctly identify eighty of them and I'll miss twenty of them, right? And so nine hundred of the hypotheses I test happen to be not true. And so these are the numbers that tell me how often when I find a statistical significant result, it happens to be true, right? So 66% of the time. <coughs> now, if I took the same hypothesis and said only 1% of my hypothesis happened to be true, my numbers look like this. And so you can see this drastically changes how often a statistically positive result will end up being true. 14%. And so how often do we actually see this in reality, right? So this article was published in the Mayo Proceedings in 2013, and these authors looked at just the New England Journal of Medicine, and they looked at studies that were testing an established practice, so a known practice that we accept to be true. How often when you actually go to validate those findings, do you find out no difference between the two groups? So 40% of the time. 40% of the time they found when they went back to try to validate uh, accepted medical practice that it was incorrect, right? And so this kind of jives with the idea that 10% of our hypotheses are true, and if we use our current methods of statistical testing, we'll be wrong 40% of the time. Now some authors have argued that we should just lower our p-value, right? If we lower the threshold that we accept as statistically significant, then we'll incorrectly identify treat wrong treatments less often, right? But then you miss the whole other side, right? We're gonna miss a whole lot of treatments that might be beneficial. And I think the problem isn't using a p-value to, to decide what's statistically significant, but rather the whole idea of frequency statistics and how we use that to decide what medical practice is relevant, right? So frequency statistics was developed for agricultural and um, mechanical engineering. And the idea was that, say I had a widget, and I was building a widget for a washing machine, right? And at the end of the day, I had to know how many widgets were defaulty. And if it was over a certain threshold, I was going to reject a whole batch of widgets. I couldn't go and take a look at every, all 10,000 widgets. I have to sample a certain amount. And what frequency tells me is if I'm over a certain threshold, I should reject the whole lot of widgets. And if I'm under, then I have an acceptable amount of defected widgets, right? So in, certain, in cases like that, statistical frequency, yeah, statistical Frequent statistics works perfectly, right? Because it's a binary dichotomous decision. But in medicine, things are far more complicated, right? It's never a yes, no. There's a lot more shades of gray. 
And more importantly, it doesn't take into this, right? The past evidence. Statistical frequent statistics functions in a statistical vacuum. It asks me, you to reject or accept the null hypothesis based on one trial. It doesn't go back and look at everything else. And past evidence is essentially your prior probability, which in reality looks more like this. You take all the trials, all the biological plausibility, all your physiological reasoning, and add them into one big pretest probability. And ideally, you take your one trial, and that would influence your result. Right? So it only has the power to influence your result as strong as that trial is itself. And when you do it this way, you've gotten rid of the whole idea that I have to make one decision based off one test. And then I don't have to look at one question. I can look at a whole data set. I can look at how it influences everything, because I'm not going to get thrown off by a p-value that happens to be less than 0.05 by statistical chance, because I'm looking at everything in totality. And this is what Bayesian statistics is at the heart. So Dr. Reverend Bayes came up with this theory in the, in the 1700s. And Bayes' theorem essentially states the probability that my observation be true is not only based on the strength of my observation, but also on the pretest probability of that observation actually being true, right? So the best medical example of this is what's our most accurate test we have in medicine? Pregnancy test. So pregnancy test is incredibly accurate, right? Well, what if I did a pregnancy test on a man and it came back positive? What is the likelihood that that male is pregnant? Zero, right? Because the pretest probability of him being pregnant is practically zero. Um, so no matter how strong your observation is, it will not be true because of your pretest probability. Right? And so Bayes' theorem, when we're looking at it in the form of statistical trials or, or methodological trials, is the Bayes factor. Right? And so the Bayes factor is essentially the probability of data given the null hypothesis over the probability of data give, not given the alternative hypothesis. Right? And that's the only thing any one trial can tell you. Right? The pretest probability is based off everything else we know. And I don't want you to get hung up on a Bayes factor, because it's really just a number. Right? Here's a nice conversion table. You can see p-values versus Bayes factors. And you can essentially calculate b uh, base factors with the same data you have that you calculate p-values, right? But the nice thing about this table is you can see how it shifts your post-test probability based on your pretest probability. So you can see p-value 0.05, which is our statistically significant p-value, doesn't shift your post-test probability enough to really make a clinical decision until your, your pretest probability was already very low. So we should talk a little about qualitative versus quantitative Bayesian analysis, because a lot of people get hung up on this quantitative Bayesian analysis, which is a very complicated system. It looks something like this. And then you have to take even more. You have to add in the risk of qualitative bias. And then you have to add in your pretest probability. And so this number here and this number here what are they, right? This is a subjective judgment. And so you're essentially just putting a number on your subjective judgment, right? And I mean, we'll do a quick example to show why this is far from a quantitative data set. So therapeutic hyperthermia following cardiac arrest. Who's read the TTM trial? Who's read the HACA trial? The Bernard trial? Keep your hands up if you've read the Cochrane analysis of 2012. The Hichimi Idrisi trial, it's the one with the funny cooling helmet. All six trial, observational trials that use historical cohorts. 
all 10 prospective cohorts that didn't have any controls. All the retrospective studies, the case series, the case studies, the unpublished abstracts, and the foreign language data. All 1,851 hits you get when you type therapeutic hypothermia into PubMed. And so what this exercise is getting at is at some point in your an evidence-based endeavor, you have to make a subjective judgment of what you're going to consider data, what you're going to include in your pretest probability, and what you're going to discard as unhelpful. And you can do what Cochrane does, where you can say, I'm only accepting high-quality randomized controlled trial data. Everything else I'm discarding. And if you do that, you're going to left with three high-quality randomized controlled trials. But I would argue if you do this for every single evidence-based question you have, you will lose a great deal of the granularity of the data. And so we'll do a quick example of that. What does Cochrane say on metformin-associated lactic acidosis? They say, I've looked at over 70,000 patient years, and I found no evidence that metformin lactic acidosis exists. And yet any toxicologist you talk to says, that's crazy. Of course metformin-associated lactic acidosis. So how do you reconcile those two things? You've got high-quality evidence-based medicine. You've got a toxicologist's opinion and experience. Right? It's because everyone who has ever randomized into a, a controlled trial with, met, with metformin was never at risk of having metformin-associated lactic acidosis in the first place. So if you use Cochrane's definition of the truth on this question, you'd be wrong. And so the whole point of this is the pretest probability of a Bayesian analysis is very subjective, and you can put a quantitative number on it, but I don't think you have to. I think a qualitative analysis using Bayesian statistics or using a Bayesian model works just as well. And it's far <coughs> less complicated, right? So how would we look at this trial from a Bayesian standpoint? So there's your absolute risk reduction in high flow nasal cannula compared to face mask. And from a Bayesian approach, you would say the most likely hypothesis here is there's a 10% difference between the two groups. But you can have varying degrees of other benefit, right? And now I take this model and say, this was the most likely hypothesis, right? And where does it put me, right? So the p-value was 0.1, the, the base, uh, base factor was 0.26, right? And you can see, unless I had a, a very low pretest probability, this doesn't shift my post-stress probability very much. So it's not very strong data. But what's my pretest probability for high flow nasal cannula and hypoxic respiratory failure? There's not much, right? There's four or five small observational trials all showing relative abilities or relative success and relative intubation failures. We don't have much data. In fact, this is probably the most robust study so far, right? So the best we can say here is that this is hypothesis building and more work is needed. But what about for BIPAP? What's the data on BIPAP and hypoxic respiratory failure? <coughs> so, we have two randomized control trials now and multiple observational studies, all showing that when you use BiPAP and hypoxic respiratory failure, a large proportion of those patients fail. And not only that, the patients that do fail in some of these studies do worse than the patients who were just intubated early on, right? And in all the studies, the failure rate all kind of circulates around the same number, 50%. Right? And so what was the failure rate in the flare trial? It's 50%. Right? And in fact, if you look at the patients that did fail and who were intubated in all the three groups, the patients who were intubated in the BiPAP group versus the high-flow nasal cannula, there was a 19% mortality difference. So when you did fail in both groups, you did far worse when you were on BiPAP. And so this sort of 
increases the evidence that maybe BiPAP itself is harmful in hypoxic respiratory failure. Not based on this one trial alone, but based on this and the pretest probability of that being true. So where do we go from here? What, what, do, we do, what do we do with this data? What can we say about high flow nasal cannula? We probably can say we don't have enough data. We need more data to really make a decision, and we can't really choose off this one trial. But I think we can say that BiPAP might be bad for these patients, and we got to start thinking that not only do we have to use lung protective ventilation when the patient is intubated, but we have to start thinking about that when you put them on non-invasive positive pressure ventilators. And of course, none of this tells us when we should intubate these patients. How early should we actually intubate them and protect their, their, um, their lungs? <coughs> So summary. So we talked about sampling error. This is the random deviation from the truth. And we talked about how we can use frequentist statistics to actually quantify that error. We talked about bias and how this is non-random error, right? It's very hard to actually quantify. And probably the best thing we can do is try to actually control for it through randomization. We talked about frequentist statistics. We talked about how we use it. But we also talked about how it can lead us astray because it forces us to make dichotomous choices. And finally, we talked about Bayesian statistics, which is a more holistic view of trials and how, and how we no longer have to take a primary endpoint. We can look at the whole trial as long as we understand that we're not making yes, no decisions based off this one trial. So any questions? That's my email address and my Twitter handle if anyone wants to ask me any questions. If anyone wants the paper we wrote where there's a lot of good data on this, I can send it to you. And thank you.